This is a Parks Canada production. Ce balado est aussi disponible en français. This episode discusses sexual assault and race-based violence related to the slave trade, though not in graphic detail. Listener discretion is advised. West Africa, early 1700s. A young African woman, we don't know her name, sits by a fire. Gazing into the flames, she'd never imagined that her fate lay an ocean away as the owner of an inn and tavern in foggy Nova Scotia, the first black businesswoman on record in Canada. But between then and now, she'd endure one of the most horrific of human experiences, being kidnapped and sold into the Atlantic slave trade, and then spend 19 years enslaved in the French fortress of Louisbourg with a name imposed by her enslavers. This is the story of the woman known as Marie Marguerite Rose. The image that Canada loves to present of itself is this place that received fugitive slaves from the United States. That's a celebrated story. But Canada had its own history of enslavement. I'm your host, Fred Shepard, and you're listening to Recollections, Enslavement and Freedom at Fortress Lewisburg. This episode was made in collaboration with a Black People's History of Canada project at Dalhousie University. Parks Canada is known worldwide as a leader in nature conservation, but we do much more than that. Together with our partners, we commemorate the people, places, and events that have shaped what we now call Canada. Join us to meet experts from across the country as we explore the sites, stories, and artifacts that bring history to life. In this episode, instead of terms like slave and slave owner, we'll use enslaved person and enslaver to recognize the humanity of enslaved people. Terms like slavery and the slave trade are sometimes necessary when discussing humans treated as objects to be bought and sold. In 1757, the fortress town of Louisbourg, capital of the French colony of Ile Royale. Louisbourg officials proceeded to Marie-Marguerite Rose's apartment at 9 o'clock in the evening of August 27th and entered the room facing St. Louis Street where they found Mary's body. The court officials immediately began to conduct an inventory of the items in the house. Item, a man's shirt, new, having only one sleeve. Imagine a complete list of all of your possessions as you left them on the day of your death. Two necklaces, one of pearls, the other one of garnets. Two pairs of silk stocking, one white, the other one gray. What would it say about your time on earth? Two old Calamanco petticoats, one of them red, a pair of pant trousers, and an old chest. Historians love a probate inventory document, like the reading you just heard. A person's possessions can tell us a lot about their lives and what they valued. The inventory of Marie Marguerite Rose is the only one we know of from a once-enslaved person at Ile Royale. It provides some clues on her remarkable story of resilience, linking 18th-century Louisbourg to the wider French Empire, where salt cod, sugar, rum, and yes, people were traded as commodities, transported between Africa, the Caribbean, North America, and Europe. 
Marie Marguerite was one of at least 400 people enslaved in the French colony and one of only six to gain freedom. To piece together her story, let's start with the location, a fortified port on an island in the Atlantic Ocean. The island is part of the traditional territory of the Mi'kmaq Nation, who call it Unamagi, which loosely translates to land of fog. Today, it's known as Cape Breton, part of the maritime province of Nova Scotia. The Fortress of Louisbourg was established in 1713 on a peninsula on Cape Breton's eastern shore, part of the colony of Ile Royale, near what's now the community of Sydney. Louisbourg held a strategic location, a deep sea port on the Gulf of St. Lawrence, the main entryway to the colony of New France in what's now Quebec. Easy access to the valuable Atlantic cod fishery didn't hurt, and it became the capital of Ile Royale in 1719. In the 18th century, as France and England fought for control over North America, the French went all in on defenses. Louisbourg was fortified with high stone walls and had troops permanently stationed to withstand attack. But it wasn't enough to keep Louisbourg in French hands. In its 45-year existence, the British captured it twice. Forward! And after the second battle, destroyed the fortifications. Louisbourg is really a unique place. I mean, it guards the Gulf of the St. Lawrence, the entry to Canada. This is Dr. Afua Cooper, historian and professor of Black Studies at Dalhousie University in Halifax. It's symbolic and it's emblematic to me of the struggle in the 18th century between France and England and the creation of this world of slavery, the creation of this world of trade, the movement and migrations that you see all across the Atlantic. The slave trade was big business in France and throughout its empire, and Louisbourg played a central role. Its fishery produced a rich harvest of cod. The best bits were exported to the lucrative European markets. The less desirable cuts of dried, salted fish were shipped south to the French colonies in the Caribbean to feed enslaved peoples there, whose labor produced the coffee, sugar, rum and molasses exported to Europe and North America. Most enslaved people at Lewisburg began their lives in these Caribbean colonies, transported and traded like the commodities they produced. But this was not the case for Marie Marguerite, who spent her early years in Guinea, West Africa, before being captured and sold into the slave trade at 19. From there, she was forced into the ruthless sea journey known as the Middle Passage, part of the transatlantic trade route between Africa and the Caribbean. Treatment of the enslaved people was horrendous. Overcrowding, food shortages, violence, disease, and death were widespread on these ships. We don't know which French Caribbean colony she ended up at, but shortly after arriving, she was sold to one of Louisbourg's elites, baptized as a Catholic and assigned the name Marie Marguerite Rose. Her original name, along with much of her life story, remains lost to history, part of the dehumanizing efforts of the enslavers. In the French and British colonies that eventually became Canada, a total of approximately 4,000 Black people and 2,700 First Nations people were enslaved. The majority of the indigenous people enslaved by the French lived in the New France colony. But at Ile Royale, 90% of the enslaved people were of African descent due to the close trade links with the Caribbean. 
Marie Marguerite was enslaved in the home of Jean and Magdalene Lopino, an upper-class Lewisburg family with 12 children. She was likely responsible for most domestic tasks, like sweeping the floors, cleaning, preparing meals, cutting firewood, collecting well water, keeping the fire burning, gardening, and providing childcare. When I talk about Marie Marguerite Rose, I feel a great connection. This is Charlene Chasse. I am an interpreter at the Fortress of Lewisburg, and I self-identify as African Nova Scotian. Charlene shares Marie Marguerite's story with visitors. I feel like this woman went through hell to be taken from slavery, taken and brought up here. Dear Lord, I think I'd be coming to the other end of the world as the temperature would drop as you clock the coast of Lewisburg. And then to be enslaved and not being your own property, not having your own lines that you're at someone's beck and call 24-7. Around 3% of Lewisburg's population was enslaved. Most were domestic laborers like Marie Marguerite, servants, nursemaids, cooks, gardeners. The plantation labor that we often associate with cotton, tobacco, and sugar crops in the United States and the Caribbean didn't exist in Canada. But the work was still brutal, as Afua explains. Let's think of the wear and tear on the body of doing this kind of work every single day. Not getting enough rest, not getting enough nutrition. Reconstructing the lives of enslaved people is challenging. Evidence and details are hard to come by. Enslaved people appear in population data, but they're usually unnamed or simply listed as possessions. Archaeologists have found artifacts like tools and household objects connected to enslaved people. But since most were unable to own property and were illiterate, they rarely left behind written sources like journals or letters. The last thing slave owners wanted to do was teach a person how to read and write. Because when you learn how to read and write, you're empowered. You really are. This is Ken Donovan, a retired Parks Canada historian. To learn about the lives of enslaved people, researchers like Ken have to piece together bits of information from documents, like birth records, baptisms, wills, court records, bills of sale, and newspaper ads for runaways. So this is how we learn about it, what I call incidental documentation. A little bit here, a little bit there. You just have to pick away at it. You're looking for one thing and come across a person that had been enslaved. All across lower and upper Canada, the Maritimes, you could find newspapers. And in these newspapers, enslavers were advertising for their runaway slaves or sending notice that we, we want to buy people, we want to buy black people as slaves, or they want to sell. Enslavers also left probate inventories with details about enslaved people in the household, like their age, gender, skills, and the amount they could be sold for. Another glimpse into Marie Marguerite's life comes from a baptism record. Two years after arriving at Lewisburg, she gave birth to a son named Jean-Francois. His paternity is listed as inconnu or unknown, though the child's father was very likely Marie Marguerite's enslaver. At least 35 children were born to enslaved mothers at Lewisburg. Enslaved people often slept under the same roof as the men who enslaved them. For enslaved women and girls, sexual abuse was a constant threat. When you look in some of the records of birth for enslaved people, you have these enslaved women who have children who are described as mulattoes or fathers unknown. Now what's that? What's this fathers unknown? <laughs> you know, what's, what's that all about? 
the priest should be ashamed of themselves before, before even writing that because they know who the father is. So many of those children that the women got pregnant with whose father is unknown was as a result of rape. So you live in the household of the master. You might be living in the basement or in the attic or there's a, a little dark room that you sleep in. You are vulnerable. A woman is, is sexually vulnerable to the men. And, and I'm not saying men weren't sexually abused. I mean, research is coming up now that's showing that did happen to. But the bulk of that kind of abuse we know was to women. And not just women. Sometimes we're talking about young girls, young children, age 11, who were raped by their enslavers. Jean-Francois, as Marie-Marguerite's son, was born into enslavement, adding to the enslaver's personal wealth. When he got older, Jean-Francois lived and worked alongside his mother. Sadly, we don't know much about his short life, only that he died of unknown causes just before his 13th birthday. The vast majority of enslaved people in Ile Royale died in enslavement. Only a small fraction ever had a taste of freedom. For Marie Marguerite, that freedom came around the age of 38, after 19 years of forced, unwaged service. To replace her, the Lopinos purchased a 12-year-old boy named Amable Louis César. As with many details of Marie Marguerite's life, we don't know exactly how she was freed. Throughout the French Empire, enslavers would sometimes manumit or grant freedom to an enslaved person if they were sick or could no longer work, though this was rare. In some cases, an enslaved person would work for someone else in addition to their enslaver to save enough money to buy their own freedom. Marie Marguerite married a Mi'kmaq trader named Jean-Baptiste Laurent soon after, so it's possible that he purchased her freedom. This was the case with another Louisbourg couple, Jean-Baptiste Cubidon and Catherine Françoise. He was a formerly enslaved freedman who entered into a contract with Catherine's enslaver paying for her freedom over the course of a year. The couple offered their belongings and themselves as collateral until the payments were complete. As for Marie Marguerite and her husband, there is a lot we don't know about their life together, like how they met and whether he lived in Lewisburg before the marriage. We do know the couple rented a half-timbered house with a yard and a garden near her former enslavers for their in-business as well as their home. Much of what we know about Marie Marguerite's life as an innkeeper comes from a letter she never received. From where I start my inquiry for historical women, there's a level of challenge finding information. For women of color, there's like a quadrupled level of challenge. This is Anne-Marie Lane Jonah, a Parks Canada historian based in Halifax. So it is a personal letter. The letter from a French business contact was discovered in a British archive centuries after her death. What he's writing to tell her is that the last time he left, he left on a ship and was immediately captured by a British privateer. Privateers were like mercenary pirate crews sanctioned by the Crown, authorized during wartime to attack ships of enemy nations and seize their cargo. And he had this long, circuitous route to finally get home in southwestern France. So he's writing to tell her that he won't be back, <laughs> that the war is going to prevent him from returning. 
In the days before modern postal systems, people often sent letters on private ships. He mentions that he has left with her a trunk full of goods and a procuration, which is in the French court, is like a power of attorney. So he's saying, I'm not going to get back, so please wrap up my business for me. And he asks her to sell the trunk, and he asks her as well to get the money that he's owed for his share of a privateer. So he's asking her to go on his behalf and talk to merchants of Louisbourg about business and trusting her to be able to manage all of this. So it takes our perception of her as an innkeeper, definitely gives us a sense of how embedded she was in the business community of the town, that she was known, that she was trusted, that she could go to Monsieur Imbert, who was one of the wealthier merchants, and settle this deal. And then he concludes his letter, even though he's made it very clear he's not coming back, that he still is waiting for the honor of seeing her again one day. This is a form of politeness, but it goes beyond the usual business letter. It definitely has a sense of a regard for her and that for him, seeing her and talking to her is a pleasure. And suddenly, I feel like you see her a little better. You can see her walking down the street to go meet this merchant to take care of business. But this letter never made it to Marie Marguerite because the French ship it was on was also captured by English privateers, which is how it ended up in a British archive, and from there, into Anne-Marie's research. It's unlikely the letter would have made it to Marie Marguerite one way or the other. She died suddenly in August 1757, the same year it was written. Enslaved people generally didn't live long lives, Marie Marguerite was around 40 when she died, young by today's standards. But for a woman who had experienced hard labor and exploitation, she likely outlived many of her peers. We don't know how she died or what became of her husband, but we can be certain that he didn't stay too much longer. Only a year later, Lewisburg faced its final battle. In a pivotal turning point of the Seven Years' War, British forces laid siege to the fortress, eventually capturing and destroying it. Just one year later, the decisive battle at the Plains of Abraham near Quebec City effectively ended French colonial ambitions in what's now Canada. Interestingly, there was a 12-year-old enslaved boy named Olauda Equiano aboard one of the British naval ships. He went on to become an exceptional figure in the abolitionist movement against slavery and wrote about his experience at the Battle of Lewisburg years later. We arrived at Cape Breton in the summer of 1758, and here the soldiers were to be landed in order to make an attack upon Lewisburg. My master had some part in superintending the landing. The French were posted on the shore to receive us and disputed our landing for a long time. But at last they were driven from their trenches and a complete landing was effected. Our troops pursued them as far as the town of Lewisburg. In this action, many were killed on both sides. Our land forces laid siege. At last, Lewisburg was taken. The British destroyed much of the fortifications to prevent anyone from retaking it. For 200 years, toppled stone walls were the only remnants. But in the 1960s, Lewisburg's fortunes began to change. 
Cape Breton's once thriving coal mining industry was in decline. To help revive the regional economy and provide new employment for the miners, the Canadian government proposed rebuilding the fortress of Louisbourg as a living history museum. What visitors see as the National Historic Site today is a carefully researched reconstruction of one quarter of the original town. Military, commercial, and domestic buildings line the streets, offering an interpretation of life in the fortified port during its heyday. The reconstruction was a massive undertaking, spanning over 20 years. But luckily, the French bureaucracy of the 1700s kept detailed plans and maps to work from. It's notable that a society that prided itself on reason and good governance saw no contradiction with allowing slavery at the same time. That contradiction lasted nearly another century. Slavery was banned throughout the French Empire in 1848. In most British colonies, including British North America, slavery was abolished only 14 years earlier, in 1834. The reconstructed fortress opened to the public in stages, beginning in 1968. In the early days, visitors didn't hear much about its history of enslavement. The interpretation generally focused on the upper-class sections of town. Later, Parks Canada began looking into a broader spectrum of Lewisburg society. Here's Ken the retired Parks Canada historian. Charlene and I worked for years. I'm literally saying that for years because we had to educate people in Cape Breton about slavery. We developed uh, uh, scenarios and tours based on Marie Marguerite Rose's life and uh, to develop an interpretive scenario because we had good evidence on her life. We did have a slavery tour for a number of years. I think we had uh, 27 people in about 14 different houses. We walked along the streets and, see this house here? This is where so-and-so lived. And then when we did uh, recognize Marie Marguerite Rose as a person of national historic significance, we bust people in, free into the site, black people from Whitney Pier in Sydney. So it was uh, quite a celebratory moment, really. Here's Charlene again. It, it really didn't affect me until later on I started working here. Then, you know, we do a slavery tour, you talk about slavery, but then it started to touch home a little bit more. It made me want to do a little bit more research on where these people came from and what they did. And it's my passion. If it's properly interpreted, because we give it our all, you have to step up to the plate and you have to make sure you're going to give it 110%. These people deserve dignity. They didn't have it during their lifetime. They didn't have it during the time they were on this earth. So I'm here. I'm going to show you and tell you how they were. And I'm gonna show you that these people were human beings just like any other person on this earth at that time. Just that some people in their mindset, they were a different color, they spoke a different language, they came from a different country, continent. So they're gonna be treated different because they believe that they didn't have any morals, any brains, and they were considered animals. An important stop on any tour of Lewisburg is by the plaque commemorating Marie Marguerite Rose as a person of national historic significance. It's in a grassy field where her inn once stood, a reminder of the place where travelers and merchants looking for a bed and a meal could meet and discuss the day's business. The plaque reads, in part, Captured in Africa at the age of 19 and transported to Ile Royale, Marie Marguerite Rose is seen to be a key figure of the initial phase of black slavery in Canada. Rose's experience speaks to the presence of slavery on Ile Royale and in Canada, where an estimated population of 1,375 black slaves existed during the French regime. 
Buildings are not the only things reconstructed at Lewisburg. Costume interpreters like Charlene share the story of this place with visitors. To help them look the part, Elizabeth Tate, a curator of textiles for Parks Canada, creates replicas of historic clothing, including two dresses based on Marie Marguerite's probate inventory. What's interesting about her inventory is that the garments are French, but the materials were a little bit unusual. And so I was surprised how much cotton was in her inventory, and it's quite possible that that was the Guinea influence. Some of the more colorful items mentioned in the inventory may be connected to Marie Marguerite's West African roots, where producing indigo dye was important work for many women. Here's Ken and Charlene again. She has uh, dye, blue dye, and we know along the coast of Africa, particularly the west coast of Africa, the uh, people wanted very colorful clothing. Bright colors. So when you look at it, her roots come back in the way she dresses and the way she looks after her household. Charlene described Marie Marguerite's outfits. She would have a bonnet or wool vest, a woolen skirt, woolen socks, a chemise, a petticoat. When they did her inventory, they found that she did have some silk stockings. She had a neckerchief that had some lace on it. So we assume that these things came from somebody that gave it to her. The slave does not come across silk stockings or a lace because that's handmade lace, so you wouldn't have that on every day. But it's unbelievable when you get in that costume and you walk around, you feel middle class. No corset, thank God. One of the things that I liked the best in that inventory is that she had married, and there's a description of a man's shirt and one sleeve is pinned in place. And so I just assumed that she knew how to sew and was actually making her husband a shirt. So it's nice, like it's a very human, it's just, it just sort of makes her more immediate to us. These historic costumes help tell the story of life in Lewisburg. The clothes are a big part of us. That's what people identify. When they come here, they want to step back in history. It's clear that Charlene feels a deep personal connection with this African woman born centuries ago, thrust into a life in a faraway place she neither wanted nor chose. A similar sentiment came through when speaking with Afua. This story is so tremendous. It's so unique. Because when she died and, you know, her she had an estate, she left clothing, she left groceries, so to speak. She was monumented two years before she died. And so in that two years, she set herself up, she got married, she established a tavern and an inn. So to have that evidence such as this, I just think it's tremendous. And because of that, Parks Canada has flapped her existence, has flapped her story, has flapped her life. I mean, she died. Uh, that is unfortunate. She never got to see her homeland again. But I feel heartened. I'm glad that she established a business. I'm glad that she got married. I'm glad that she has, you know, had this love relationship. I'm happy for that. It makes me happy. So it was rare because enslaved people typically just went through this life of slavery, this life of brutalization and die, and we don't know much about them, you know, not leaving much evidence behind. Enslaved people in Ile Royale were stripped of their names, their identities, and their histories. They were forced to adapt to lives they did not choose and could not control. Yet, they were individuals with personal stories and identities they likely kept hidden from their enslavers. 
They had a significant presence in a place like Lewisburg, but sadly, we know very little about most of these women, men, and children who lived and died in enslavement. More people have to know. More people have to know about slavery in Canada. It wasn't just the French. The British also brought their slaves over here. We don't know our history. We don't know where we're going. And everybody should dig into their history and find out where they're going. I was born and raised in Jamaica. My heritage is slave heritage. My ancestors were enslaved. They went through these things. You know, I'm sure some of them run away and I'm sure some of them were killed. So this is the work that I've chosen. It's not a, just an academic gesture. It's also a real personal thing for me. I've been here now for almost 20-some years. You couldn't ask for a better or magnificent job than what I'm doing here. When you open, you say everyone goes to their office and in the corner window, well, I have a view that you can't even pay for. No skyline could do it, no nothing. It's absolutely beautiful. Fortress of Lewisburg National Historic Site is open to the public year-round, but for the full interpretive experience, it's best to visit in the summer months. It's a five-hour drive from Halifax, or you can fly to nearby Sydney, Nova Scotia. Visitors can tour the reconstructed, fortified town and learn from the costume interpreters who bring the site to life. Recollections is produced by Parks Canada. A big thank you to our consulting producers, Dr. Afua Cooper and Dr. Carolyn Smards-Frost, an archaeologist and historian specializing in North American Black transnationalism. And thank you to Charlene Chasse, Ken Donovan, Anne-Marie Lane Jonah, and Elizabeth Tate. For loads of extras, including a Google Arts and Culture exhibition with photos and historic maps of the fortress, take a look at the show notes or visit parks.canada.ca slash recollections. I'm Fred Shepard. Thanks for listening.